pastor. My name is Hunter. Uh, I'm one of the members here, but we're very glad you're here. And then, uh, family, it's good to see you all again. Uh, so I want to start this morning, uh, or this, this sermon, if you will, in a little different way. I want to start it by posing a question to you. Simple question, shouldn't be hard to answer, but the question is this. What do you want? Let that sink in, let you sift through that. What do you want? And not just like, what do you want for lunch? Or maybe you're thinking, I want my kid to be quiet. Or what do you want for Christmas? But what do you want from your life? What are your deepest desires? What are your purest passions? What ultimately do you want? And ask this question because I think this is the primary question in our text this morning. But I'd also argue this is the first and final question for the soul itself. So much of life centers around what it is that we want, or you could say, what we love. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 3 through 12. While you're finding that, I want to give you some context to prep our passage. So the book of 1 Timothy is a letter uh, in the New Testament. If you are unfamiliar, you can flip far to the right-hand side of your Bible. You'll find it there. It's a, amidst a section of text called the Epistles. This particular one is an epistle or a letter written from the Apostle Paul to his disciple, Timothy. Timothy is not um, his literal son, but it's his figurative son in the faith. His disciple, Paul, brought him up. He, he kind of raised him in the gospel. And, and Paul is writing to Timothy to, an, uh, to encourage him and to urge him to continue to preach the gospel amidst the presence of false gospels, specifically the prosperity gospel, and what it looked like in that day. And so by the time we get to chapter 6, Paul starts drawing these comparisons between the false teachers, the teachers of this false gospel, the prosperity gospel, and his disciple Timothy. And Paul starts to tease out what is kind of making each one of these men click, and then he closes by instructing Timothy on how he can live so he can avoid the fate that has fallen upon these false teachers. So with that said, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 12. It says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction." For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Let's pray. Father, would it not be forgotten on us as we open your word, the magnitude 
of the realities about which we are about to unpack. Lord, there are no words that our eyes will see today that are more important than these words. There are no words our ears will hear, yet that are more true and more clarifying and more convicting than the words we are about to hear from your scripture. Lord, as we just sang, would you speak to us, Lord, through your words? Would you protect me and the, the words that come out of my mouth? Lord, and would you give us all eyes to see you more clearly, Lord, ears to hear your voice, that we might glorify you and enjoy you forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so as I said, at this point in Paul's letter, Paul is comparing these false teachers with his boy Timothy, and he's kind of comparing their ways of life. And Paul is kind of taking a look underneath the hood, and he's looking at what's going on on the interior of their lives so that we can see how it produces what we see on the exterior of their lives. And Paul's making these comparisons, and he points out three specific realities that distinguish these false teachers from Timothy. And so Paul first looks at their loves. You could say their, their wants, their desires, their longings, their wishes. He also looks at their lives, and he looks at their logic. So we have love, lives, and logic. If you're taking notes, those are our three points. I alliterated them for you, and you're welcome. So I chose this text, though, this morning, because Kevin just usually he, he hands me a text and says, hey, can you preach on whatever, because we just teach exegetically here. If you're new here, we typically pick a Bible, uh, what, what are they called, a book of the Bible, and we just march through it, right? It takes a long time, but it's beautiful. It's the way the church has historically been uh, kind of taught in the gospel for millennia. But this morning, and, and as Kevin's been absent for a few weeks here, he just said, hey, t pick a text, just any text. And so this text stood out to me because just like Timothy, we too are a people steeped and saturated in false gospels. Right? These are alternative narratives that tell us what is good and how we should live. And foremost among them, still today in our culture, is the prosperity gospel. Right? You could say it's the American dream, that life has this trajectory of up and to the right. And the longer we live, the more comfortable we should be and the easier life should get. The only problem with that is the scriptures. Right? And so my hope is that by looking at this text, we can avoid the pitfalls of these false teachers, and we, like Timothy, can finish the race of faith well. So once again, look with me at verses 9 through 10 in our text, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul looks at the loves of these false teachers, and this goes back to our question of what do you want? Right? We're looking at the desires of their hearts. Paul says this, he says that those who want to be rich fall into temptation a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, right, this is the appetite of their hearts, some have wandered away from the faith, and they have pierced themselves with many pangs or many griefs. And so Paul uses three phrases here to illuminate what it is these false teachers want. He says first that they want to be rich, just right off the bat, right? And the Greek word there for want is the word bulamai. Can you say bulamai? Very good. You guys, yeah, you guys are awake this morning. It means this. It means to will or go after something deliberately. So that means there's purpose. There is intentionality in their pursuit of health and wealth and prosperity. Next, Paul says they love money. Right? He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And what's interesting here is that this word in the Greek, the love of money, is one word with one meaning. 
And what that means is that Paul is diagnosing their heart. Right? It's not just that I have some belly pain, it's that I have appendicitis. I don't just have a headache, I have a tension headache in the frontal lobe. This is very specific. Paul says this is a peculiar kind of love and a peculiar kind of idolatry. Lastly, Paul says they crave it. They crave wealth and what it can bring to them. And the term here in the Greek is orego. Can you say orego? Good, good. Okay, so it means to stretch oneself out in order to grasp something or to give oneself up for the love of money. Basically, these guys are so in love and infatuated with money, they are willing to lay down their lives to get it. To use a cultural idiom, they are selling their soul to the devil himself because this is what they want, and they want it ultimately. This is what they desire. This is what they love. Now, what about Timothy? What does Timothy love? What does he long for? Well, Paul doesn't give us the same kind of description of Timothy here. He doesn't list out Timothy's loves like he did with these false teachers, but he does give us one power-packed three-word phrase to tell us exactly what it is Timothy loves. He calls Timothy the man of God. The man of God. This is a phrase of identity, and it's one that comes packed with all the implications of the Imago Dei from the Genesis creation narrative. See, this phrase carries with it and acknowledges that Timothy is both human, which means he has fallen and finite, but at the same time that he is made in the image of God in the Imago Dei. But not only that, this phrase also acknowledges that as Jesus put it in John chapter 3, Timothy has been born again. And this not of the will of man, nor of the flesh, but of God himself. In the words of Ezekiel 36, that God has taken Timothy's heart of stone and has removed it and replaced it with a heart of flesh that beats for God. It says that Timothy now wants what God wants. He loves what God loves and he craves what God craves. And as disciples of Jesus in the 21st century and as men and women of God, this is what we want as well. It's what we love. It's what we long for. This is the appetite of our souls. It's for God to be glorified and for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven and this through our lives. Now, the reason why what we want is so important is because our desires drive us, right? Our loves and our longings, they lead us places, and they lead us towards what's called a telos. It's just kind of a fancy philosophical word, but it means a goal or an outcome. It's why uh, the Old Testament sage Solomon told his son and instructed him in Proverbs chapter 4 to guard his heart above all else because it's the source or the wellspring of life. See, Solomon knew that our desires drive our actions, and our actions determine our destination. As James K. A. Smith says, the things we do, do things to us. Right? They form us and they shape us for better or for worse. And those things come from a source, don't they? They come from the heart. They come from our desires, what we love and what we long for. In fact, Jesus, uh, or excuse me, what we want is so important that Jesus asked this question, some form of, hey, what do you want, some seven times throughout the gospel. Scholars say that's more than any other single question he asked. And what's kind of strange is he would even ask this when it seemed really obvious what the other person wanted, right? Blind Bartimaeus comes up, what do you want, Bartimaeus? Probably not a coffee or a nap, right? He probably wants to see. But Jesus wants to know. He wants more than anything else, more than sacrifice, more than duty. He wants our hearts. Right? God looks at the heart. 
So much of life boils down to our answer to this question, and it really is the first and final question of our lives, because our desires drive us and our loves lead us. Now, there's another side of this coin that we often forget about, and it's this, that while our loves lead us and our desires drive us, they are also meant to be led and directed. Our loves should be taught and they should be tamed. They should be governed and they should be guided. In fact, from a completely secular standpoint, this is just what it means to grow up and mature. Right? This is adulting 101. It's learning to guide and govern our wants and our desires. And the lack of this is the cause of much of what ails our society today. Right? It's that we have followed our desires completely unchecked, and we have failed to give those desires any sort of healthy or reasonable direction. Because our society has removed the idea of an absolute truth, and remove the idea of an absolute good, and for sure remove the idea of an absolute God, we have allowed our loves to run rampant in the streets of our souls without so much of a speed bump to slow them down or hold them accountable. This is what possesses boys to be called girls, and it's what uh, allows the unborn to be murdered. This is a following after the heart, but refusing to aim that heart at any sort of wise or good truth. The prophet Jeremiah rightly diagnosed our condition apart from Christ when he says the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. And we see this play out in the lives of our false teachers. Look at the text once again. We'll go through verses 9 through 12, and we're gonna, 9 through 12. We're going to see the life or the outcome of these false teachers. And we'll see the instruction Paul gives to Timothy to safeguard him from that same outcome. Paul writes this. He says, those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So there are six key verbs in this text, the few verses we just read. Two of these verbs address the false teachers. Four of them address our boy Timothy. I want to list them just kind of bullet, uh, bullet format here. And I want you to see if you can tell the difference between the verbs that address the false teachers and the verbs that address Timothy. So to the false teachers, Paul says this. He says they have fallen into temptation and they have wandered away from the faith. To Timothy, Paul says, flee from these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So you have fallen away and wandered away on the one hand. And on the other, you have uh, flee, pursue, fight, and take hold. Now, what is different about these two lists? I'll tell you what's different. What is different, if you didn't pick up on it, is that the verbs aimed at the false teachers are passive verbs, meaning the action is happening to them. They are essentially victims of the verb. They have fallen into temptation. They have wandered away from the faith. On the other hand, the verbs towards Timothy, they're active verbs, right? Timothy is not the victim of these verbs. He is called to carry out the action itself. He is to flee, pursue, fight, and take hold. Now, what does this tell us? 
I think it tells us this. I think it tells us that falling into temptation and wandering away from the faith aren't primary pursuits in and of themselves. They are secondary byproducts of seeking something other than Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Falling into temptation and wandering away from the faith are not primary pursuits in and of themselves. They are secondary byproducts of pursuing, seeking, wanting, and loving anything other than Jesus Christ. Because the truth is, nobody goes out looking to fall into temptation. Right? Nobody wants to wander away from the faith. The bumper sticker, all who wander uh, aren't lost or whatever, that's not what this is talking about. Nobody goes out looking to ruin their lives. It just seems to happen to them. But it happens to them because they want and they love something other than Christ. They're believing a false gospel, and therefore they're worshiping a false god. And this is the outcome every single time. For these guys, they wanted to be rich. Right? They loved money. They craved it. But everyone will suffer this outcome who fails to direct their desires or who directs them in all the wrong places. The outcome is that they fall into temptation. They wander away from the faith if they ever had any to begin with. So how do we direct our desires in such a way that we don't fall away? Right, that we don't wander off and that we can say in hindsight like Paul did that we fought the good fight. We finished the race and we kept the faith. And that's where I think these four imperatives come into play. Because we don't know the outcome of Timothy's life, but we do know the outcome of Paul's. Right? It's what I just said. I think towards the close of 2 Timothy, Paul says that exact thing. He looks back on his life. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I have kept the faith. And how did Paul do that? He did it with the four imperatives he's giving Timothy to do the same. Right? So Paul tells us this. And let me just say, this is not going to be extensive exegesis here. We don't quite have time for that. Oh, we do, but I won't take it uh, this morning. That's a sermon in and of itself. But Paul gives us a framework to follow. So first, Paul says, flee. He starts by telling Timothy and us as disciples to flee, right? It's to flee the false gospels. It's to flee the ideology and the doctrine of the prosperity gospel. But in a broader context, this is to flee sin itself. Simply put, the first way we fight sin is by fleeing sin. This is the first line defense for the people of God, and it's evidence that we are disciples of Jesus to begin with. Jesus acknowledged this and taught this himself in John chapter 10 when he said that his sheep know him and follow him because they know and recognize his voice. He said they will never follow the voice of a stranger. They will run away from him. They will flee him because they don't know the voice of the stranger. So the first way we direct our desires rightly is to flee lesser loves. We cut off an appetite by starving it. Next, Paul says to pursue. Right, so first Paul says to flee all of this stuff. It's kind of a negative command, like don't do, don't touch, don't taste, right? Don't see the little monkey emoji on your phone. You know, this thing, whatever that is. All of that stuff, but now he gives us a positive command, an affirmative command. All the things that you used to do over here, now you can't do, let me give you something to put that time and energy towards, and it's to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. In his excellent book, You Are What You Love, author James K. Smith points out that virtue, or godliness, he says, is much more caught than it is taught, meaning that sanctification doesn't happen as we acquire more information, but as we undergo a process of character reformation. And this happens, Smith says, in two primary ways, through imitation and through practice. 
Oscar Wilde affirmed this idea when he said that learning to love takes practice, and practice takes repetition. Or as David Brooks acknowledged, he says we're decent at learning. Like in the classroom, you have a textbook. We're decent at that. He said we are fantastic at imitating. It's as we follow our Lord Jesus, and we imitate Him, and those who go before us in the faith, and we do this in a long obedience in the same direction, that over time, we learn to, as Paul put it, put on love. Third, Paul tells us to fight. He says to fight the good fight of faith, and this is simply the daily work and the weekly rhythms that help us to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these rhythms remind us that just like Timothy, we are people of God. And that is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And as we rehearse this narrative in our heads, it captivates our heart. And it sends it up to live for something bigger than ourselves. Namely, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lastly, Paul commands us to take hold to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And notice here, Paul speaks of eternal life not as something to be waited on until we die, but as something to be grasped in the here and the now. And that's because in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, eternal life is much more about quality of life than it is about quantity. In fact, by definition, for anything to be eternal, it must be presently occurring. And so salvation, which just means healing, this whole person healing, isn't so much about securing something for us when we die, as it is about granting us access into something that is already going on, the kingdom of God. Which means for the believer, in the words of Dallas Willard, eternity is now in session. It's just really a matter of will we live into that reality, or will we opt out of it? And the way we live into it is simply by directing our desires towards this king and towards his kingdom. All right, so we've seen, hopefully, that what we want matters because our desires drive us, our loves lead us. And we've also seen that our desires can and should and are meant to be directed. As James K. Smith says, we are all lovers. It's not a matter of if you will love, but what. And lastly, we just looked at how we do that. How do we aim our loves and send them up towards Jesus Christ? Uh, so that we don't waste our lives. And lastly, I want to look at where we should aim our loves. Where do we direct these desires? Where do we send and aim our heart? And this gets down to the level of logic. The most basic difference in our text between the false teachers and Timothy is simply the logic by which they operate. Right? It's the lens by which they interpret their world. This is the funnel everything passes through before uh, it's sifted out into their lives. Look with me once again. We're going to kind of go back and look at verses 5 through 8, starting midway through verse 5. Paul says this about the false teachers. He says, they imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. But, Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. So Paul gives us the logic of both the false teachers and of Timothy here. And about the false teachers, he says, they imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Notice the word imagine there, right? As in they, uh, it's kind of an illusion or a dream. In the Greek, the word means to think or assume. Meaning their logic isn't based on absolute truth or ultimate reality. It's based on a false presupposition that stems from their heart's misguided desires. Paul's essentially telling us that their logic is illogical. 
because it is based on a lie. It's why Paul said just a bit ago in verse 5 that their minds are both depraved and deprived of the truth. And therefore, their logic is based on subjective wants rather than objective reality. On the flip side, it's exactly what Jesus meant in John chapter 8 when he said to his disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free. Yeah, only the gospel, only objective reality as God has defined it, frees us to have our hearts awakened to the glory of God and our minds enlightened by the truth of God. So we are free to not waste our lives. We are free to live into ultimate reality as defined by the maker and sustainer of reality. And Paul lays out this reality with the next couple of verses. He says, in contrast to the prosperity gospel and the false doctrines of the day, that godliness with contentment is great gain. So gain isn't what we get from the gospel. Gain is that we get the God of the gospel. And see, the logic of the gospel is this. That there is one and only one way to live your life in such a way that when the credits roll, your life tips the scales and it says gain instead of loss. It says counted instead of wasted. And the only way for that to happen is to live for the glory of God. And the only way to live for and to maximize God's glory in our lives is to be fully satisfied in Him. As John Piper said, and probably most of you know and could quote, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Which means that the thing that most threatens that reality, the reality of us being satisfied in God and God being glorified through our lives, is when we want something more than we want God. And what is this but discontentment? This is why God commands us in the Old Testament, Thou shalt not covet, because God knows that covetousness separates us from making much of Him, and therefore it separates us from making our lives count. So not only is godliness with contentment great gain, I would argue that it's the only way we make our lives matter. As Jim Elliott said, and I've quoted from this pulpit probably every time I preach, he says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. This is the logic of the gospel, and this is the logic of the godly. And so I'll ask you again to close a simple question. What do you want? And my prayer from this text is simply that we would be a people who love and long for Jesus more than all that life can give and more than all that death can take. Because godliness with contentment truly is great gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. As Jesus himself said, your word is truth. And that by knowing the truth, we are set free. Would you help us, Father, going ahead, Lord, to find our rest in you, that godliness would be with contentment would be the calling card of our lives, Lord, that it would be the hallmark of our souls to find our satisfaction in you. For your glory, Lord Jesus, and for our good. Amen.